Hi, welcome to Access and Opportunity, a new Morgan Stanley podcast that helps connect capital and communities. I'm your host, Carla Harris, and I'm a vice chairwoman and managing director at Morgan Stanley. In this episode, we will explore how capital access and influence can drive multicultural small business success. What position has today's guest not filled? He's been an entrepreneur, lawyer, professor, legislator, and a mayor. He is currently serving as the president and CEO of the National Urban League, the nation's largest and oldest civil rights organization. In a distinguished professional career that has spanned more than 25 years, Mark Moriel has performed all of these roles with excellence and is one of the most accomplished civic leaders in the nation. Today, we are meeting my friend of 20 years in his office in Manhattan's financial district, which is why you might hear the noises of the city every once in a while. We're going to pick Mark's brain about the state of access to capital for multicultural and women entrepreneurs and discuss a revolutionary program that aspires to level the playing field. That's also a partnership between the National Urban League, Morgan Stanley, and the National Development Council, or NDC, as many of you might know it. Mark, it seems to me that there's a pervasive misconception that multicultural and female-owned businesses pose inordinate risks to investors, that there's a high probability of not being repaid or that returns will be below market. Now, this podcast, as you know, is meant to debunk that idea. And I'm so glad that you started because what you did is go right to the heart of the matter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when we go to the heart of the matter, let's talk about the fact of the matter. Yes. And so the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at Department of Commerce studies, the longitudinal study of minority and women-owned businesses in America, mm-hmm. it demonstrates that their growth rates are faster than the S&P 500. Now, inside of that, there are many great successes, certainly there are failures. It's no different than other industry subset. Small businesses uh, are the producers of about one out of every three jobs uh, in the United States uh, for a long, long time are sort of intertwined with the American dream, the idea that someone could, from their own sweat and toil and ingenuity and vision, build an entity that uh, gives them an opportunity to raise their families and their children, but also an asset that they can leave to the next generation Mm -hmm. and an institution that provides valuable and needed products and services to the community. So we've got to get the story out with facts and data. We at the Urban League uh, look at this information uh, scrupulously And I think what uh, has occurred over time is that that perception has sort of taken root in certain financial communities. So Mm -hmm. I'm here to say investing in small businesses is good for America, good for the nation, and good for the investor. Yes. The investor can indeed make a return. I think what we've tried to do, and uh, this partnership with Morgan Stanley and NDC and the National Urban League has sought to do is create a mechanism or a vehicle that investors could look to, that investors could have confidence in as a model on how you invest. I think sometimes the system around investing in larger businesses is very mature. That's exactly uh, they're right. very sophisticated, uh, if you will, operations within commercial banks, uh, sophisticated and uh, 
knowledgeable, if you will, personnel within investment banks who know how to finance large transactions, to do it in ways that guarantees returns, to do it in ways that provides protections for investors. That type of system doesn't exist to the extent it should for small businesses. It used to be that small businesses were funded by the community banker on the corner. Mm -hmm. When community small banks really ruled the roost in America, when banks can only do business and sometimes in one county, only do business in one state, uh, globalization has changed that. And there have been many benefits for globalization. The sometimes corner banker is no more. So what we've tried to do with the Capital Access Fund, uh, Cleveland being a great example, is give the small business owner, uh, through the Urban League affiliate, access to an ecosystem uh, that includes uh, Morgan Stanley, NDC, and the Urban League to assist them uh, and make themselves attractive for capital formation, but also uh, to to send a signal to the investor that this is a safe thing to do. Mm -hmm. I could not agree more. And I think you've hit on something that I'd like to make sure our listeners are really clear about is what's the formula of success? And let's look at all three of those pieces. The Urban League has a local presence. The entrepreneurs know about it, so therefore the knowledge of the resource in the community was important, but that resource is knowledge of the entrepreneurs, also important. The National Development Council is one of the largest distributors of loans to small businesses, so there's the expertise around the due diligence and the underwriting. And then there's Morgan Stanley, obviously, with our structuring capability and the footprint that we have around the country, also hopefully being that magnet, if you will, to be able to attract other capital and get other local capital, potential capital providers comfortable with this as a risk. But, but Mark, let's talk a little bit about the differences. You, you said that larger banks, investment banks, and commercial banks understand very well how to structure and distribute transactions for large entities. There's something different with the small business. So if we're going to educate a listener in how they can get comfortable and what needs to happen, let's talk about what the Urban League provides to would-be borrowers in the way of education and training, again, such that the potential investor can understand the risk is lower because look at the education that's being provided. Well, you know, the shorthand in the business is, let me see your package. Uh And what that means for a business owner is it means a balance sheet, an income statement, and a forecast. Standard operating procedure. Well, a small business may not, in the normal course and scope of things, have that ready and available. So one thing we do is assist small businesses in, if you will, packaging themselves Mm -hmm. in an attractive fashion. Uh, What is your business plan? A banker wants to see it. Uh, What are three years of your past financials? A banker wants to see it. What does your balance sheet look like? What about your forecasts? And we also try to uh, make them aware of some hard realities of things like collateral. Mm-hmm. personal guarantees, some of the things that create angst and sometimes confusion. That's a big role that we play. We also play the role of uh, sometimes saying to a small business owner, you're not ready yet. We want to help you prepare 
for this conversation. And as opposed to uh, walking in a bank and getting a door slammed in their face, they come to the Urban League and we say, we're not going to allow you to get the door slammed in your face. Let's see if we can work with you Mm -hmm. to prepare you. Some businesses are not prepared nor ready. Or let's uh, suggest that the amount of money that they're looking for doesn't match what they can reasonably justify Mm -hmm. in terms of a capital injection. So we work closely with them and our uh, business counsels who work at our affiliates are seasoned and experienced. Mm -hmm. The gentleman in Cleveland who works with the Capital Access Fund of Cleveland uh, is a business owner himself, has been enormously successful understands what it takes and not only that understands what it takes to be successful in that market Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, every market is different what you need to do is different i had a banker friend of mine who uh, runs a community bank uh, tell me that he could evaluate a person by simply who they worked for whether their job was secure i said well how can you do that he says because i probably bank the employer he says so i sort of know whether this is a stable business that never lays off people never fires people i have a window inside Mm -hmm. of that that's a little bit unique i said that's not something that shows up on paper Mm -hmm. that shows up because i'm knowledgeable about the community so i know if this person has been working for that business for five years and they're a good employee the business is not going out of business next month Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. employment is stable therefore when i look at their income i know that their income is foreseeable Mm -hmm. for three, five, seven, nine years. You know, there's intangibles. Uh, We don't recognize sometimes, you know, I'm I'm always amazed by the success of some of the tech giants of today. And the question I I always ask is, where did their first money come from? Mm -hmm. Not the first VC dollars you had. Your first money, invariably, it's from family. That's right. Invariably, it's maybe from some personal savings mm-hmm. or slash sweat, sweat equity. But it's family and friends who may, be, may have believed in them enough to put 100, 150, or 200,000 behind them. And then they got that first VC mm-hmm. to give them a half a million or a million. And then they were ready for the second tranche. That's right. So many of our businesses, small businesses, particularly businesses from communities of color, may not have the family depth, right? May not have the family wealth, uh, may not have the people that they can go to in the community to say, look, please give me $25,000. Well, if a person's got a net worth and, you know, got a half a million dollars in the bank, giving a family member, a friend, or close friend $25,000 is not a small amount of money, but it isn't going to place them in a risk. But if you don't have any savings and a family member comes to you and says, would you support my business? You may say, I'd love to do it, but I can't give you uh, my children's tuition money That's right. that I've been saving for the last 15 years so that they can go to college. It would be irresponsible of me to do that. So we try at the Urban League to help businesses prepare themselves 
for the conversation. And, and you brought up a very good point here, Mark, because I think therein lies the crux of the issue with respect to access to capital for multicultural entrepreneurs and women. They don't start with a family and friends round in most cases. And they also lack the networks that lead them right to the venture capital community. Right. Now, here's the interesting thing. You started with the statistics about uh, entrepreneurs of color being the fastest growing segment within small businesses and particularly women of yes. color being the fastest segment. So what's interesting is that even with the lack of access to the family and friends rounds, they can get the businesses started. So now let's talk about the fact that they can't scale and what's happening institutionally when they uh, approach trying to get it. And it is things like, what's the credit like? What do you know about the business plan? What can you tell me about your forecast? So again, if I'm coming from the investor uh, perspective. I think this is a really unique opportunity, especially if I already have some know-how. Why is this I've always, so hard? I've, and, c- because I think it's uh, always difficult to live down historic misperceptions. Mm-hmm. You know, which 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 can be based on racial and gender stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And I ride the, the the countryside, so to speak, in the cities of America and. I'm I'm collecting business cards from entrepreneurs and people with ideas. Mm -hmm. They have the ambition. They're looking for connections. That's right. They're looking for capital. Mm -hmm. They're looking for contracts. Yep. You know, they're very bullish and optimistic. They just need access. So let me pull from your experience as a mayor, Mm -hmm. as a CEO of a city, because I happen to think that that's where some of our biggest opportunities are, is in enabling entrepreneurs to, number one, understand the resources that are available at the city level, but also those who are in positions of leadership in cities and in states. I think that many of them don't know how to pull together the right team of people or, or, or the, the right cohort, if you will, to provide this capital and the access to capital to actually expand the growth in their cities. I decided at the beginning, because I had not only been a small business entrepreneur, I'd been a lawyer that represented a lot of small businesses. We created an office of small and emerging businesses within the city's economic development division. Uh So we started out doing very, very simple things, which was to be an information hub. Mm -hmm. We also brought the major banks in the community to the table and asked them to engage more closely with us, particularly around those small and minority businesses who were going to do business with the city. Mm -hmm. We revamped all of the city's policies to create targets and goals Mm -hmm. for small and minority business participation. And I sought to extend the reach and commitment to projects that were not specifically city projects, but projects where the city provided incentives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many cities will provide incentives such as uh, sweetheart lease deals for developers to develop office buildings or hotels or affordable housing. Sometimes you uh, provide tax abatements. We wanted people who do that to sign what we call an open access agreement, where they agreed to do business with small and minority-owned businesses and local businesses. The mayor's job is to also be a champion and a bully pulpit 
around why growing small businesses, growing emerging businesses, growing minority businesses is good for the overall community. Mm -hmm. We know that in one of the cities we've looked at has looked at deploying its uh, cash investments, if you will, towards small business lending. The thinking being if we're investing in emerging markets Mm -hmm. with taxpayer (laughs) dollars overseas, markets we can't even see, some of us can't even pronounce the names, why can't we invest our cash in emerging markets right here in our own community? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of enlightened thinking uh, that I think mayors can provide and elected Mm -hmm. officials can provide. Let's leverage our assets. We had very, very large infrastructure projects when I was mayor. We expanded the convention center. We built a new basketball arena. I just absolutely insisted that there be minority business and small business inclusion in those projects. Mm -hmm. I told the major business owners in the city, when we put our multi-billion dollar infrastructure program together, I said, we're going to do 20-25% participation goals for minority and women-owned businesses. I want everybody to have an opportunity to sit at the economic table. You've got to say that when you talk about small businesses and minority businesses, it's not us against them. It's inclusionary growth, right? Everyone can participate. There's an interesting historical footnote that I always recount. After the Berlin Wall fell, Eastern Europe, which had been uh, communist, we provided 1% loans. And significant cash investments because we wanted them to understand privately owned business enterprises. So we provided dollars. The theory of the case was why would the United States do it? Because, oh, they'll become our trading partner. Mm -hmm. They'll become, uh, if you will, customers for our businesses. I mean, low interest loans, very, very attractive loan guarantees in the name of expanding free enterprise. Mm -hmm. That same philosophy should hold within the borders of the United States. If you want to strengthen and expand the free enterprise system, help more people participate in the free enterprise system. And and I would argue that in the absence of government participation, that's where you can have more private sector participation. There, frankly, is a, a mutual benefit because if I am a global company doing business in a local market, by strengthening that local market, I enhance the talent pool that I can pull from. And we all know that there's a war for talent, right? So if I can actually create opportunities for uh, small businesses to grow, therefore creating greater jobs, therefore creating greater wealth, people become better educated, I have a larger pool to pull from. So even if it's not about the 1% return at the end of the day, and I would argue, Mark, that in the community, the returns that are available at a minimum, are high single-digit, and in most cases, double-digit or beyond. And when you think about the last five years of interest rate environment in this country, it's been you know a 1% or lower environment. You could not put your money in a traditional way bank 
and get a greater than 1% return. CDs were a pain. That, the, exactly. But think about the barbershop that needed $25,000 to expand right. from one location to four locations. Right. And I'm pretty sure uh, he or she would have taken that money, $25,000 with a 5% return, right? If you want to talk about risk. So 4X of what you could have gotten in investing that in a bank, especially with somebody who has a proven model. You know, let's talk about one of the borrowers in Cleveland, for example, for a daycare center, a million dollars, right? But there's been no defaults on any loans distributed out of the capital access fund in Cleveland. Zero. Zero. One of the things I'd like for you to talk a little bit about is you have 13 centers uh, within the Urban League, focused on small businesses now. You alluded in our last conversation that you guys were doing some innovative things. You're thinking about expanding that. Can you tell the listeners a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, so our 13 centers, uh, the genesis was we started with three in 2004. Wow. As a pilot. We funded it in an innovative way because we, uh, we are a participant in the New Markets Tax Credits Program yes. in a partnership with Stonehenge Capital. And so from that, we earn uh, financial counseling dollars, and we invested those dollars into the creation of these centers. Uh, the idea was that we were going to stimulate, if you will, small business growth. When the Urban League got into entrepreneurship and uh, I joined and brought the idea that we should get into this space, you know, I had a few people challenge me and say, why should we get into entrepreneurship? I said, because we need to be about creating jobs. See, we've basically been begging people to hire people, and we're going to continue to do that. But why don't we get out here and create some jobs? I said, that's all small business growth and development is about, mm-hmm. creating jobs, job creation, right? Ten-plus years later, we've got 13 centers, and then we've got approximately 15 affiliates who run a hodgepodge of small business and entrepreneurship center programs. And then we provide class-based instruction. And then we provide what I call connection services. So in a given market, we might bring in the loan officers from Bank A. Okay. And the loan officer from Bank A will not only network with the businesses, but say, here's how to do business with us. Here's what we look for. Here's what our services are. Or the procurement director from Company A will come in and say, this is how you do business with us. We need this registration. We need this certification. Let's tell you about what we buy. Mm-hmm. We don't buy this. We don't buy this. But we do buy that. So we're doing that kind of work today, primarily in most of these markets. And a lot of the individualized coaching and counseling could be everything from helping people refresh their website to helping people prepare for a presentation to a customer to helping people get prepared to go to a bank. It's really small business consulting provided for free. We want to deepen the breadth and the scope of what we're able to do. We uh, would like to have the capability to provide more sophisticated services because when a business grows, their needs become more complex. It may be that they need assistance in negotiations with customers, with a landlord. Uh, We're not quite set up to provide that. We want to do that. And then if I've got 13 centers, we've got 10 affiliates on the runway saying we would like a center. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If capital was not a limitation, we could have 50 
entrepreneurship centers in the country. Mm -hmm. Given uh, our economist, Bernard Anderson, we do an economic impact study of all of our programs each year. The entrepreneurship center program has the highest economic impact of all of our programs. Yeah, no surprise. Mm -hmm. And he says it's emerged even though the number of people we touch is smaller than, let's say, the number of people we touch in our job training and workforce programs, which is in the hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. But the impact of these, in terms of what they're able to do, is so significant. So we can tell our story with data. We track that information scrupulously uh, so that we can tell the story of how simply what we do is making a difference. And in our relationship, our partnership is about the next level. Yes. And that is providing capital opportunities. And so if we're doing two markets now, you know, my vision and hope is that uh, we'll be in more markets than we can count on 10 hands. Yes, well, that, that is our hope as well. And the more important thing is that we want to create a multiplier effect. Yes. We want to get going back to where we started this conversation about the local presence. It's one thing to have a global bank participate, but it's another thing to have the local bank back in the equation because that's how you're going to make sure that it is sustainable because that bank, that local bank, is not going to leave that market but no matter what. I, I mean, I kind of walk where we are down here, and I walk outside, and I see all of these uh, places where people eat lunch. Mm-hmm. Most of them are small businesses. Many of them are owned by people of color. A lot of them are owned by immigrants or first-generation Americans, right? Some of them have built tremendous family wealth, but their customers are the employees of big businesses. Very good point. And sometimes we don't realize, suppose tomorrow they all went away. You'd have a bunch of starving employees. (laughs) Of all the big banks. (laughs) Well said. And therefore not productive, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> be hungry and not productive. Yeah, that would be a, that so would we don't, be a problem. You know, the point is interdependency yeah. of the economy between large businesses and small businesses. It's front of our eyes every day. We don't always see it, know it, and understand it. Yeah, and let's just, let's just you know, call the facts as they are. The businesses that we're calling multi-billion dollar global businesses today were small businesses and emerging businesses at one point. You know, when you think about all the tech giants that are out there, I I talk to audiences all the time and I say, just think, 15 years ago you couldn't say I want to be the CEO of Instagram or I even want to be the CEO of Facebook. They didn't exist, right? And they were small companies at one point that are game changers, disruptors in classes by themselves today. Well, this is the opportunity to get in on some of these businesses that exist. As you said, they're not the only smart entrepreneurs uh, in the country, right? So if you can get in on the ground floor of one of these, how do you know that helping one of these companies right there in your backyard won't give you the ability to ride a unicorn? They could, in fact, be that. So that's part of what we're trying to do is to open up the access to these great ideas, these great entrepreneurs with capital. Mark, we're going to play a lightning round so that our audience gets a chance to really know the man. All righty, right or left-handed? I'm right-handed. Favorite attraction in New Orleans? Gumbo, red beans, and jambalaya. I heard that. <laughs> I agree on all three. City or countryside? I'm a city guy, but I love the country, too. Wow. Winter or summer? Give me summer. 
Coffee or tea? I'll take tea. <laughs> the city that you're most excited that the Urban League is working with Boy, right you now. Well, you're going to get me in trouble on this, right? Uh, because we've got 90 great cities that we work in. I'll just single out because we're working. I like what we're doing in Cleveland because I've watched under Marsha Maccabee's leadership the Cleveland Urban League She's come great. back from a very difficult period about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a turnaround artist. Mm-hmm. If you had a talk show, who would be the first guest that you'd have on? Honestly, the first guests I'd want to interview are not available to be interviewed. Okay. It would be Nelson Mandela. Yeah, yeah. It would be Muhammad Ali. It would be Fannie Lou Hamer. Okay. I'm going to let you slide on that I was going to Nicki Minaj. <laughs> <laughs> uh, surprising fact about the Urban League. We were founded by a black man and a white woman. I think that most of the legacy civil rights organizations, the NAACP is the same way in the National Urban League, were founded by a multiracial group of founders. Yeah. So multiracialism has been present in the Urban League's work from the very beginning and in the NAACP's work too. That's an important thing to highlight, especially today. And then my last question for you, one word to describe your legacy. Passion. Well, Mark Moriel, thank you very much. I always enjoy talking Carla to Harrison. you. Congratulations <laughs> on your historic and groundbreaking career. Ah, thank you. Historic. One of your historic. You sound old, brother. Uh, wait, no, wait, hold sister, on. <laughs> you, know, you know, don't use the word old. You know what you say, huh? You Caesar. say, I'm Caesar. That's right. Caesar. Caesar. Um, That's exactly right. No. No, old is a state of mind. Well said. Thank you. I'll take that. Thank you all for listening. I'm Carla Harris, and we'll be back soon with another conversation about access and opportunity. 